This is my first time appearing with, uh, albeit virtually, with the Morningside Institute. It's a wonderful entity, organization, really useful for the students in the New York City area to be enriched and to have a formative and nourishing intellectual community. And uh, they couldn't have a better leader than uh, Nathaniel Peters. He's just terrific. Uh, his wife uh, is amazing too, Jane. And uh, we, we always love it when they come visit us at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, and and uh, hopefully some of you in the audience can come visit us sometime as well, back when we're, we do things like visiting each other uh, in person. Um, uh, the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture, which I have the privilege of directing, has a variety of um, academic programming and research offerings that might be of interest. And you guys can check all that out at ethicscenter.nd.edu uh, if you're inclined to do so. That My remarks this evening are drawn very heavily from uh, the book itself. And, um, and so the framework for the talk or the claims of the talk, uh, first, I want to share with you the methodological argument of the book. The book is has two basic arguments is a methodological claim made and then there's a substantive claim made. And I'm going to spend more time this evening on the, uh, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll balance out both. Um, and then hopefully at the end, if there's time, I'll be mindful of the time to save time for uh, conversation. Uh, if there's time, then I will take the, 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 the substantive and methodological claims and, and apply them to one of the concrete subject matter areas of the book, uh, which I'll elaborate on momentarily. But if there's not time, we can just go through really the most important substantive and methodological contribution of the book, um, and, uh, and then we can you know, suss out the applications of it uh, in, in conversation. So the principal methodological claim, as, Nath as Nathaniel's remarks alluded, is that I think that the richest and most potent method of analyzing matters of, <clears throat> of public bioethics, and I'll define public bioethics for you in a moment in a more granular way, what I mean is the law and policy that concerns uh, the ethical questions arising from biomedical science, biotechnology, and the practice of medicine. The most potent and richest point of entry and way of understanding the American legal landscape and policy landscape in this particular domain is through what I call an inductive anthropological inquiry. Uh, and when I use the word anthropology, I mean it in its kind of original literal sense, that is an account of what it means to be and flourish as a human being. Uh, not so much its modern academic sense of sort of empirical study of faraway cultures and peoples um, <clears throat> uh, in a more descriptive way uh, uh, that are specific to, 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 other, to, to precise cultures, but a, a more broad-based question about what it means to be a human being, what it means to flourish as a human being. Uh, and the inductive anthropological inquiry that I mean to uh, to apply in the book and, the, and the, the point of entry that I mentioned a moment ago that I believe is the is the most potent way into these kinds of uh, questions is to subject the legal landscape to an inductive that is you take the law as you find it, uh, you take the policy as you find it, and you drill down into its normative framework and ask the question, what vision of the person and human flourishing is animating these doctrinal principles, these public policies, these laws, whether they be judicial decisions or administrative agency actions or concrete legislation by the U.S. Congress or state legislatures or, or, or what have you. Um, so that's the methodological claim. The richest way in is an anthropological pathway and an inductive one. That is to say, one that bring, that that's asks the question in light of the law as you encounter it. The substantive argument of the book is that 
when you do that, when you apply uh, that, that mode of analysis, that an inductive anthropological analysis to the vital conflicts of American public bioethics, and I take up three particular conflicts, the, the, the conflict over the law and policy concerning abortion, uh, the law relating to assisted reproductive technologies, and the law that touches and concerns end-of-life decision-making, including physician-assisted suicide. When you look at the law in those areas, what you find is the assumptions about the person and human flourishing that drive the law forward and sustain it um, reflects quite closely uh, a vision of human flourishing and human identity that philosophers have called expressive individualism. And the critique of the book is that this vision of expressive individualism, uh, while it does offer some important truths about who we are and how we stand in relationship to one another, it is not a full account of who we are and the, and the areas in which it fails to describe our fully, our full, the full complexity of our lived experience, it cannot uh, serve as a, um, as, as a sound basis for law and public policy because it doesn't make sense of the lived reality of human embodiment. That is uh, the fact that we all live, uh, die, experience our world around us and, and one another as living and dying bodies. So human embodiment is, I argue, an intrinsic feature of human existence and of human reality. And the anthropology of expressive individualism fails to, to be able to give an intelligible account of our embodiment and, and its entailments, like our vulnerability, our reciprocal indebtedness to one another, our subjection to natural limits, our frailty, infinitude. Uh, and because it doesn't take the body seriously, to use Alistair McIntyre's words, because it's forgetful of the body, it cannot serve as a, a suitable foundation for public bioethics. So um, <clears throat> to that end, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, first of all, define with a little bit more precision what I mean by public bioethics, talk a little bit about the history of American public bioethics uh, and the sort of catalyzing events at the inception of, of this new area of law and public policy at the end of the 1960s and the beginning of the 1970s. Uh, I'm going to explain in more detail and in more depth what I mean by an anthropological analysis of law and public policy, how it works, why anthropology, in the sense that I mean it, has any bearing at all on understanding law and public policy. Um, and then I'm going to uh, describe for you the anthropology that comes to the surface when you examine the vital conflicts of American public bioethics, namely uh, expressive individualism. And I'm going to offer a critique uh, of that vision of human identity and human flourishing as a foundation for law and policy, especially in public bioethics. And then I'm going to propose that there is a kind of anthropological corrective that is in order, uh, a kind of supplementation of the incomplete, fatally incomplete vision of human identity and flourishing offered by expressive individualism, uh, but with something that I call in the book, the anthropology of embodiment, which includes also the the, the goods, practices, and virtues that are necessary to sustain a framework in which embodied beings like you and me can live and uh, not just survive, but also flourish and become the kinds of people that we're meant to be. And then I'm not sure we'll have time for this. As I say, in the book, what I do is I take um, the three concrete legal and public policy areas of abortion, assisted reproduction, and end-of-life decision-making, and I apply this anthropological framework and surface the premises about human identity and flourishing, offer a criticism, and then offer a kind of provisional way forward in response to that. Um, if there's time, I may talk about assisted reproductive technologies and the laws, uh, really the absence of law in that domain, 
but we'll see. We'll see where we are, how much time has elapsed. I don't want to bore you. And I'm more interested in our conversation than hearing myself talk. So with that in mind, what do I mean by public bioethics as a field of inquiry? Now, bioethics generally, as we all know, is simply a, is a, is a locus of ethical reflection in response to advances in biomedical science, biotechnology, and the practice of medicine that, that prompt hard, interesting questions about how we should live, what we owe to each other, questions about justice and freedom and privacy and autonomy and so forth. Um, what I mean when I say public bioethics is something slightly different. What I mean when I say public bioethics is I'm referring to the governance of science, medicine, and biotechnology in the name of ethical goods. That is um, the, the the space in which, or the or the the moment in which the our our government, that is the um, the the judicial branch, uh, is, is particularly active in the context of abortion uh, law and policy in the United States. Uh, or the state legislatures, or the uh, which has had historically the plenary authority to regulate the practice of medicine and related activities, um, you know, U.S. Congress or administrative agencies, which have enormous power uh, uh, on the in, in in the United States, especially the agencies that concern themselves with regulating human subjects research and the practice of medicine and the delivery of health care more generally. Uh, I'm thinking of the Department of Health and Human Services or the uh, or the FDA or uh, the CDC or you know a whole host of of administrative agencies that that make decisions binding decisions that have the force of law uh, to flesh out the the ambiguities and statutes that they're charged with administering. But public so public bioethics is about law. Public bioethics is about law and governance, and it's fundamentally concerned with human vulnerability, uh, dependence, frailty, infinitude. It's about procreation and pregnancy and babies and wasting illnesses and devastating injuries, uh, desperate enrollees in clinical trials, fearful patients, the disabled, the elderly, the dying, and even the dead, and how to dispose of, you know, defining death, first of all, but then also uh, how to um, uh, what's the regulatory framework for the disposal of, of human remains and all the cascade of legal questions and policy questions that surround that. So put another way, public bioethics is most deeply about the meaning and consequences of human embodiment, about the fact that we experience ourselves, one another, and the world around us in and as living and dying bodies. And you'll see that the entailments of of, uh, of embodiment, the entailments of vulnerability and, and dependence and, um, and being subject to natural limits, those entailments frequently um, uh, create the circumstances in which crises emerge or scandals emerge and, um, and, uh, uh, and public bioethics is largely formed by governmental reactions to those scandals. And I'll say a little bit more about that right now. So there are three scandals uh, that I discuss in the book that occurred roughly contemporaneously, late 60s, early 1970s, that formed a kind of troika of events, the reaction to which gave rise to what we know now as American public bioethics. And those three events involve the publication um, by Henry K. Beecher. You can see him on the, uh, on, he's wearing the glasses and the, and the lab coat there. Uh, it's my left. It may be your right. Um, 
he published in 1966 uh, uh, an article with a very unremarkable title, uh, Ethics in Clinical Research, in which he detailed 22 experiments involving human subjects um, that many of which, maybe all of which arguably constituted grave uh, examples of exploitation and, and, and abuse of vulnerable people in the context of biomedical research. In all 22 of the experiments, only two of them uh, was informed consent even mentioned. Uh, none of those uh, experiments, none of the 22 experiments involved any therapeutic benefit to the subjects involved. And again, as I said, many of them constitute simply gross abuses uh, of, the, of the rights of the people involved and the dignity of the people involved in those cases. Two of the most dramatic examples involve the, the inj injection of hepatitis into intellectually disabled children uh, at, um, at the Willowbrook School uh, for, for Intellectually Disabled Children, a state uh, institution in, on Staten Island, and also the injection of live cancer cells into elderly patients, many of whom suffering from senile dementia, uh, at the New York Jewish Chronic Disease Hospital. Uh, and, uh, you know, they also involve prisoners and, and, and soldiers, enlisted soldiers who are subject to a pretty strict chain of command and have limited autonomy um, and, 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 and are, are vulnerable for that reason. And these were not outlier um, organizations participating in these in these experiments. Uh, he anonymized the, um, the, uh, the 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 principal investigators in the uh, in his in his article, but he um, but they involved Ivy League schools, they involved the United States government, they involved uh, the most elite and eminent um, uh, research bodies uh, in the world, and certainly in the United States. And uh, and all of these articles, or at least many of them, maybe most of them, maybe all of them, uh, were survived peer review and were uh, published in the most important journals in the country, including the New England Journal of Medicine. So this sent shockwaves through the American public. Uh, people were scandalized by it. They were sh they were shocked by it. They couldn't believe that this was going on, uh, and it set in motion a kind of congressional reaction, uh, which I'll elaborate more further in a moment. But around the same time, a few years later, um, the, uh, the, um, an article was published in the Washington uh, Daily News, um, an article entitled Human Guinea Pigs, Syphilis Patients Died Untreated, describing a 40-year-long 40 40 uh, research experiment conducted directly by the United States government, the U.S. Uh, uh, Public Health Service, you see the middle photo here, uh, involving the exploitation and systematic deception of poor African-American sharecroppers in Macon County, Alabama, which at the time had the highest concentration of syphilis cases per capita in the country. And these researchers went down into Tuskegee, Alabama, and they never explained why they were there. Um, they, they gave very misleading descriptions of what they were doing to the poor, uneducated sharecroppers who were obviously suffering not just from poverty uh, and not just suffering from syphilis, but also the systemic uh, racism. And, and, uh, and, and so they were, their autonomy was diminished and, and restricted in dramatic ways uh, by virtue of their, of their socioeconomic circumstances, the racial climate and so forth. But these researchers went in there to do what was called a natural history study. Their plan was simply to observe the untreated progress of this dread disease in this population to see what happens when untreated syphilis rampages through the human body. 
And they told the folks there that they were testing them for bad blood and that they were they, in, in, in exchange for enrolling in the uh, this, this, this 600 men uh, who were enrolled in the in the in the experiment. Uh, what they got in return were free lunches, uh, free rides and burial expenses. Uh, and uh, and they had to agree also to be autopsied after they died. Um, that's shocking enough. That level of deception is shocking enough. But what made it even more shameful is that in the middle of the 1940s, when penicillin became a standard of care for treating the symptoms of syphilis, uh, these doctors not only with did not offer that to, to, to the individuals involved, but they also, uh, it was reported at least, colluded with local health authorities and, 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 and actually uh, folks at, at Tuskegee University uh, to, to make sure that these human subjects, these, these sharecroppers, did not get access to penicillin, did not get access to any medical care that would interfere with the natural history study itself. Um, the third, the th and that obviously sent was a, an unbelievable scandal, shocked the, the public, and 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 elicited a significant reaction from the U.S. Congress, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, and then the third, and so a lot of people have heard of Henry Beecher. A lot of people have heard of of the Tuskegee uh, scandal. Not a lot of people have heard of the third scandal, which nevertheless played as a, a very significant role in the emergence of American public bioethics as a field of law and public policy. And that is uh, a series of front page articles in the Washington Post in the early 1970s, 1973, um, that detailed debates at NIH uh, about funding. And it was a little unclear, still unclear, as to whether or not these experiments had been funded, but they for sure were talking about funding them um, go in, on, in a, in a forward-looking way. Um, and these experiments involved American researchers traveling to Scandinavia, where abortions were performed by, essentially by cesarean section. They would, and which means that they would, instead of the abortion methods in the United States, which result in um, non-intact remains of of the uh, of the unborn child, uh, you would get uh, you would get not just an, an entirely intact um, uh, neonate. Uh, at that point, the baby would, was no longer a fetus and was in fact outside the body, was a newborn baby, albeit one who had been just aborted and who was imminently dying. Um, you'd have access to an, a, an imminently dying, intact um, neonate. And that was enormously interesting to these researchers who would pre perform experimentation that uh, in many cases would extend the, the life uh, of the dying infant um, and would in inflict additional, certainly indignities, if not pain, on the, on the, on the newborn child by, um, by injecting them with uh, radio-labeled microspheres. By, and, and they would frequently do this while, the, while the, the baby was still attached to the mother via the extension, uh, by the extension cord, the umbilical cord. Um, and, uh, and so this was shocking to a lot of people. Uh, in fact, there was a uh, protest organized by a local Catholic high school in the D.C. area uh, led by Maria Shriver, uh, who later a uh, very decorated journalist and first lady of California, she organized 200 students to go down there to protest this kind of research. And her mother, Eunice Shriver, and her father, Sergeant Shriver, who uh, founded the Peace Corps, among other things, they also were principal uh, benefactors to the founding of the Kennedy Institute of Ethics at, at uh, Georgetown University, which continues to this day to be a very important uh, entity. Um, uh, and the NIH director said, look, we're not probably because he was dealing with a very powerful senator's 
uh, niece, he said, you know, we're not, we're not doing this. We're not doing this now. We're not going to do it going forward. Um, but nevertheless, the idea, uh, and, and, and in fact, a lot of the arguments made in defense of that research and defense of the research at Tuskegee and in defense of the research done that was described by Henry Beecher was defended on the grounds that these physicians, these scientists were trying to um, take a, a tragic situation that they didn't create um, the babies weren't being aborted for the sake of research. They were going to be aborted anyway. The, these folks in Tuskegee, it was argued, uh, were likely not ever going to get access to penicillin because of their socioeconomic and uh, circumstances and race, racial injustice. And the arguments of the, um, the physicians who injected those children with hepatitis and, at uh, Willowbrook said, well, they were probably going to get it anyway. And in, in any event, it would be beneficial to, uh, to the common good to, to get, bring, salvage some kind of beneficial uh, knowledge from this tragic circumstance. Now, in all three of those contexts, the arguments were rejected uh, and said, well, just because someone is imminently dying, just because someone is, in, is, is subject to crushing tragic circumstances, that doesn't constitute a license for you to then go in and embrace their suffering as your own object. And that was done, obviously, uh, in the context, especially you can see in a very special way with the Beecher description, as well as the, 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 the live, the research involving a newborn baby who had just been aborted, but was imminently dying, but still alive, where they would actually, the cause of death would be the doctor's experimentation. So they were not just, they're not just passively observing a tragic situation and taking notes. They were in fact, they were taking the tragic circumstance, owning it and basically extracting and exploiting one more time for their own benefit. Um, so the arguments were largely rejected in those contexts, but that, um, uh, it, but but that not before it was it, it, the U.S. Congress got involved. Ted Kennedy uh, convened hearings. They weren't the first hearings of this kind, and uh, Walter Mondale had convened similar hearings in 1966. But his efforts really didn't go anywhere. Kennedy's, however, were much more uh, got a lot more traction, and um, and there were hearings on all of these scandals. These scandals formed the kind of the the sort of uh, the the uh, the uh, the catalyzing events to which the the the, the uh, hearings were were built around in different ways and um, uh, and after the hearings there was actual uh, federal legislation passed called the National Research Act and what the National Research Act did was created a, a sort of laid the groundwork for human subjects protections in the United States. Uh, it it, uh, it created the first national commission on bioethics in the United States, uh, and it, um, it it put a moratorium in place on research involving um, um, uh, fetuses and neonates in the context of abortion until they could get uh, a good report from the newly created commission, who, by the way, had the power to articulate. Uh, and was charged with articulating the ethical principles that should govern human subjects protection in the United States. Um, and, uh, and their, and their judgments and their recommendations were presumptively binding on the secretary of health and human services who could reject them, but would have to say why he or she was rejecting them. Uh, if, if, if they were not accepted. Okay. So what does all of this show? All of this shows that American public bioethics is a field of law and public policy is quite uh, is quite unique. First of all, it's unbelievably complicated, not just because it frequently involves highly complex and complicated biotechnologies or medical interventions, but because it always involves the seamless integration of great goods 
uh, and hoped for benefits uh, with the potential for serious and grave risks. And frequently, if you're talking about biotechnology, the biotechnologies involved, whether it be recombinant DNA or gene editing or what have you, uh, human cloning are always on their face neutral. They're simply tools that don't offer any valuable information, uh, normative information about how, about whether we should use these uh, interventions. They are simply tools to be wielded, however, uh, you know, whatever the motives and intentions of the wielder happen to be. Secondly, and it hardly even needs to be said, but um, American public bioethics is uniquely contested. It's deeply, uh, in some cases, bitterly contested. It's, and why? It's because it's concerned with fundamental human questions about which people very strongly disagree. It's concerned about the nature, meaning, and consequences of birth and life and death and procreation and parenthood and childhood and race and poverty and illness and scientific freedom and autonomy and dignity and equality and justice. Public bioethics, in other words, squarely and unavoidably poses the question of who are we and what do we owe to one another? And that's something about which people strongly disagree. Uh, and because public bioethics um, is, is frequently involves uh, what, what I call vital conflicts, that is zero-sum matters of life and death, where there really, there really is no position of neutrality for, for the government. If the government, if the government protects a class of individuals, then that's obviously an intervention that's taking sides. If the government says we're not going to protect a particular class of individuals and people can decide for themselves who and what these individuals are and whether or not they can be used in research against their will or killed or enslaved or what have you, that's also that's a, not a neutral posture vis-a-vis -vis the, 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 that particular question, right? If, by not intervening, by creating space for private ordering, the, the government is essentially agreeing that this, this population does not enjoy the moral standing of personhood with all the legal protections and moral concern that goes along with it. Uh, and then finally, what, what, what you notice in the context of this, um, uh, this uh, American public bioethics uh, sort of history lesson is that frequently what we do uh, is we seek refuge in autonomy. As the, as the grounding good of law and policy. The reaction to Beecher was to say, well, we should, we should shore up and really insist on informed consent. That was the same, that was the same response to Tuskegee and, and to a lesser extent, a similar response to the context of the research involving the just aborted, still living, but imminently dying newborns. And the problem is, and we'll see this, and, and well, uh, before I talk about the problem, I'll say what that shows, the fact that autonomy and self-determination and freedom being the primary goods that we immediately look to, uh, probably because they're sort of, you know, every, the, the, the idea that, well, if we can't agree on the substance, we can at least agree that everybody can make their own minds up. That, that's true in a lot of areas of, 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 of our shared lives, but it's not true when you disagree about the fundamental moral status and legal status of an entire segment of the human population. It doesn't, it wouldn't do to say people can make up their own minds about the folks in Tuskegee and what we owe to them and what their legal status is and their moral status is. Or it doesn't matter those kids, kids in Willowbrook or children with Down syndrome or the disabled or the elderly suffering from senile dementia that we don't actually, you know, people can decide for themselves who and what those entities are and whether you can whether you're obliged to care for them or you can abandon them or worse, uh, that's up to you. That's not really a solution because that doesn't that well, it, it's, it's a kind of solution, but it's a, I think it's an unsatisfying solution because it essentially is taking sides uh, in the dispute without saying that you're taking sides. Um, but, and the, the, but 
I will say this, the most important thing for present purposes is that the refuge that's taken in autonomy illustrates the underlying anthropological premises that are at work, right? And, and that leads me, and so, and again, we've, I won't go through all the different issues that come up in public bioethics. I've already talked about the three issues that I concern myself with, but the fact that autonomy is the, is the tool we frequently reach for, and it is ultimately proves to be inadequate because autonomy is a useless concept when you're talking about a person who is intellectually disabled, right? That's not, doesn't help the kids in Willowbrook to say, sign this informed consent form. Or you try to explain to them what you're doing. It's not going to help. It doesn't help someone whose autonomy is so diminished by economic injustice or racial injustice that they can't, that they're not in a position to exercise their full freedom to, to decide in those circumstances or for that. And for certainly it wouldn't apply to the newborn babies who had just been aborted, who were imminently dying. Informed consent doesn't mean much as far as they're concerned. It might mean something to a proxy, but that's not really vindicating the self-determination of the subject. It's some third party that we're concerning ourselves in, in that situation. So, um, so this emphasis on autonomy is the first piece of evidence that we have about what our anthropology is that's operative in this space. Now, let me say very briefly, a lot of folks, a lot of great folks, well-meaning people, smart people, try to say, well, you know what, law and morality, law and ethics, they should just be separated. We shouldn't, people disagree, we live in a pluralist country, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, uh, the law shouldn't um, impose a particular vision of morality or ethics on the public at large. And um, while there's a kernel of truth in that, it, when, you, when you actually understand what law is, it becomes clear that it, that's a kind of an unintelligible statement. It's, it, it trades in sort of incommensurable values and doesn't actually make sense because what law is, at the end of the day, is an irreducibly normative enterprise, irreducibly normative in the sense that law always, always aims at a particular good to be vindicated or a particular harm to be avoided. Frequently, we, we decide on those goods and harms through the, the, the democratic processes, through our deliberative self-governing processes here in the country. But, um, but you can't avoid making judgments about good and bad if you're doing law. That's what law is. If, you, if, 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 we, were in, if we were indifferent to that, or if we tried to be neutralized to those questions, law would be arbitrary and capricious. Every time you drill down into any legal proposition, it's, and, you, and you scrape away at the doctrinal mechanisms, you see what's this law trying to accomplish? It's trying to accomplish a particular good or avoid a particular harm. And then as such, law reflects the goods that a, that a people hold dear. So if you want to know what a people care about, a good place to start is to look at the law. Oliver Wendell Holmes famously said, and I don't usually invoke him for bioethical wisdom, but he was certainly right when he said that law is the witness and external deposit of our moral life. There's no question about it. That's not to say that every moral proposition should be codified in law or that every moral evil or moral good should be pursued by the law, should be restricted and punished or incentivized by the law. That's not to say that at all. It's just to say that every legal, every piece of law, whether it be positive law or decisional law, has at its core a normative purpose. Uh, and also, not only does law shape are, uh, uh, the, uh, reflects the goods of a particular people or a polity. It also shapes, for better or worse, public attitudes about, about goods and harms. It shapes people's understanding about what's, what's worthy of pursuit and what should be avoided or punished. But drill down a level more deeply still, and what you find is that um, the, uh, the, 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 the goods and, and ends and purposes of law is rooted in 
uh, a particular vision of human identity and human flourishing. It's rooted in an anthropology. Walker Percy said this in a very nice way in his essay, reviewing a very interesting book on bioethics, Canical for Leibowitz novel. Everyone has an anthropology. There's no not having one. If a man says he does not, all he's saying is that his anthropology is implicit, a set of assumptions that he has not thought to call into question. And um, so, and that's just as true of, of law and legal policies as well. Law, and why is that? Here's, here's, the, here's the core of the argument, right? Law is, at the end of the day, about uh, and for the protection and flourishing of persons. That's what it's for. Law is for persons. Law is to protect people. Law is to promote the flourishing of people. Now, it doesn't have to do so in an interventionist way. It could simply uh, allow for a, a broad array of, of private ordering, um, and that's frequently the right answer in a lot of contexts. Um, but nevertheless, the law always has to assume a particular understanding of what a person is if it's to be coherent and non-arbitrary and not capricious. It unavoidably rests upon a mostly undeclared conception of human, human identity, what a person is, and also what constitutes human flourishing. Now, I'm not talking about the question of, of when life begins or who counts as a person, although that is that's a, a deeply connected point and relevant to public bioethics. What I'm talking about is who you and I are, right? People who are inarguably uh, members of the moral and legal community, who are we and what are we and what constitutes our flourishing? The law has to have operative assumptions about those things or it, it, it'll, be, it'll be completely undirected and unguided. So that's why I think the richest way into understanding any area of law, but especially public bioethics, is to drill down into the anthropological core and find out what exactly is the vision of human identity and human flourishing in which the law is anchored. And what I found when I uh, did that with the vital conflicts of American public bioethics is frequently in this area, the operative understanding of the person is expressive individualism. And I offer a history drawing upon the work of Charles Taylor and Robert Bella and, and uh, Alistair McIntyre, Michael Sandel, and others uh, sort of offer a genealogy of individualism and expressivism. Why don't, we don't need to get into that here. There's actually really interesting uh, roots deep in um, the romantic literary tradition, even the pre-romantic literary tradition. Uh, John Milton was not a, a in the romantic era. He was quite, quite a bit before that. Uh, Paradise Lost has some really interesting passages in it that reflect what expressive individualism values and how it understands the person and, uh, or you know, depending on the context, the, the, the character, not all the characters were persons. Well, I guess they're persons in, in some sense in, in Paradise Lost, not human beings. Um, anyway, the, fundamentally, what expressive individualism's account of the human person is, is it describes or understands a person as an isolated, unencumbered, atomized individual self. The individual is the fundamental unit of reality, abstracted uh, from any connections to others, family members, social roles, community, tradition, civilization. The fundamental unit is the individual, okay? And everything else is secondary and maybe even accidental to that, to that reality. And so we understand persons as uh, atomized individuals and not just individuals, but individual wills. What defines the person in expressive individualism is, is, the, is, the, um, is the will, is the mind, is the capacity for desire, um, and, and in this way, it's dualistic, right? It distinguishes and dichotomizes the mind 
and the body, the mind is what makes you who you are. And the body is instrumental. It's instrumental towards the, towards the pursuit of the uh, projects and, and, and original authentic truths that are endogenous that come from interrogating the interior of the self and then are expressed, projected outward. And then we configure our lives accordingly to pursue those goals. That's, that's all, that's all happens here. And so cognition and will are privileged and the body is subordinated as a tool as are, uh, as our relationships, as are the natural world, as our other bodies, um, uh, the person is defined as a as a chooser. It's really your capacity to make decisions and to and to choose that defines who you are. Human flourishing, as I've said, is the pursuit of projects of your own construction. Uh, there's an imperative to live your originality. And Michael Sandel's word: that you're a self-originating source of valid claims. Uh, to use a philosophical term, it's anti-teleological. That is. It does not accept the view that external givens are a valuable guide to, to normative decision-making. External givens are not normative. Uh, only the unique and original inner voice, which is a cognitive reality, uh, is definitive. There are no unchosen obligations or constitutive attachments. You, uh, you are not held to account. You're not held to help anyone or to serve anyone absent a pre-existing uh, you know, knowing, intelligent, and voluntary decision on your part to do so. And why do you do it? Why do you help other people? Because you want to realize uh, it's a transactional posture because you want to realize your ultimate good, which is to, to live your originality, to discover your truth, to express it, and to, to configure your life accordingly. So personal relationships are instrumental and transactional, including relationships of family. And persons encounter each other uh, as, 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 again, as isolated wills. Sometimes they work in, in, in collaboration when there are mutual benefits, although they, they separate from one another when those mutual goals are no longer present. Uh, but they also frequently encounter each other as adversaries. And it's a world of strife for, uh, for much of the time, um, clad in the armor of of one's rights. Autonomy is elevated to the highest good to which all others are subordinated. And injustice is reconceived as the constraint on freedom to pursue projects of one's own choosing. And government and social life are really the role is to remove those constraints, public constraints, private constraints, maybe even natural constraints, and otherwise provide the conditions for the assertion of the unencumbered self. Now, why is expressive individualism a bad grounding for uh, American law and policy connected to bioethics. It's a very, very sexy image, right? Like the idea of the, the solitary will imposing its, you know, imposing its own truth, pursuing its own truth, irrespective of traditional mores or, or, or limits uh, or, or social expectations or, or, or what have you. I mean, there's something deeply attractive about that kind of an account, romantic in, 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 in many different senses. Um, so why, what's wrong with it? Why isn't that a good way to, to, why isn't that a good vision of human identity and flourishing to ground the laws and policies that are most, to, that are designed to protect and promote the flourishing of, of, of embodied beings? And the answer is, there's no, in the description I, and I, I just laid out for you, there's no role for the body other than pure instrumentality, inchoate matter that's meant to be harnessed and bent uh, according to serve, to serve the projects of the will. There's nothing in that vision of human flourishing that makes sense of the entailments of embodiment, namely mutual dependence, 
vulnerability, natural limits. That is because we are finite, because we are fragile and corruptible bodies, because we die, because we get sick, because we get injured, because we come into the world utterly vulnerable. And in the best case scenario, gradually become more and more independent, reach our peak, and then gradually descend to a state of utter dependence again. Because of our embodiment, that means that we are dependent, we're, we're vulnerable, we're subject to natural limits. Uh, as McIntyre says, we all exist on a scale of disability. When you take a step back and imagine the lifespan uh, and, and what goes on during the life of other people who are, um, who are for their entire lives radically dependent on others. But the, 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 the angle of vision of expressive individualism can't make sense of that, can't understand what that is or who those people are, and it for sure can't understand any kind of unchosen obligations running towards those individuals or unclaimed or unearned privileges running the opposite direction. It doesn't. It ignores the, the the needs and the gifts of our shared embodied life. It ignores the fact that we have to have a narrative understanding of ourselves and others to make sense of ourselves, which is a kind of dependence um, that we are the product of the prolonged work of others. And this is the most important point: that in order to survive, just to survive uh, as a baby or as a sick person or as a as an injured person, we need what McIntyre calls networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving. That's essential for our survival and for our flourishing. You have to have that if you're an embodied being. And, and that has to be composed of people who are willing to make the good of others their own good, regardless of what it means for their own personal projects, regardless of what it means for their own internal uh, original truths. Um, it, it means, in other words, that by virtue of our embodiment, my argument is we are made for love and friendship. That's that's who we are. And we're at our most human when we are caring for one another and being cared for by one another. That's the that's essentially the argument of the book. And that's all follows from the fact that we are embodied beings. Whereas expressive individualism misses the reality of that human mutual dependence. It doesn't recall or foresee past or future vulnerability. It doesn't recognize claims of unchosen obligations. It doesn't recall or repay the debts owed to others who cared for us uh, or who will care for us in the future. And it's intolerant of imperfection. It views the world as a kind of um, inchoate matter uh, to be rationally ordered or extracted from or, or, um, or, or brought to heal uh, in service of our own, of our own projects. Um, so, this is this becomes really problematic, and I'll, I'll try to wrap up here. becomes really problematic in the context of express uh, of of American public bioethics because it doesn't recognize or even hear or see the unchosen claims uh, or un, un, unearned claims and unchosen obligations to the weak, including children, the disabled, and the elderly. Uh, it leads to loneliness and dislocation. It's death haunted if we're the only point that matters in the universe. If our truth is the only truth that matters. If you die, that's it. The universe comes to end uh, at one stroke, to, to paraphrase Solzhenitsyn. Um, and it erodes social and familial ties, which uh, Robert Bella found uh, in his social science work in the 1985 classic Habits of the Heart. So what are we supposed to do? How do we augment this? Now, it is true we're free. It's true that we're particular. It's true that there's value in interrogating the depths of ourselves and projecting our original truths and including to resist, you know, uh, wrongheaded and problematic uh, stru social structures and to challenge those. That's all valuable. But that's not the whole truth about who we are. Uh, and so what we need to do is to reorient our thinking about what embodiment means, and we need to recognize and learn to participate in the networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving necessary to sustain and flourish in our shared 
uh, embodied lives. And that re- that requires us to cultivate our memory and our moral imagination, to see, to remember our own dependence, to remember those who cared for us, to, to imagine in the future those who will care for us again, to, to, to see in the other uh, those who have claims on us, um, and to, to practice the virtues of what McIntyre calls the, uh, the virtues of acknowledged dependence, um, which are divided up into, and I've added to some of these, these aren't all McIntyres, there are a lot of it's McIntyre. Uh, they are divided broadly into the virtues of uncalculated giving and the virtues of graceful receiving. The virtues of uncalculated giving are just generosity, giving in proportion to need, hospitality, welcoming the stranger because he or she is a stranger, and misericordia, that is accompanying taking on the suffering of another as your own suffering and helping to care for someone and in, 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 in when you can't care for them, simply to accompany them. The virtues of acknowledged dependence are, uh, uh, include also the virtues of graceful receiving, gratitude being chief among them, being grateful for having been sustained in our weakness and dependence by others. And that engenders a kind of sense of uh, obligation to care for those uh, to pay it forward, if you will, to try to take care of other people who are needy by virtue simply of their neediness and our common humanity and to be humble and to realize that I didn't create this world and I didn't create myself. Um, and, and as a result, the world is not mine to extract and rationally order and bend to my will. Um, I become more open to the unbidden. I become more tolerant of imperfection. I become, I see the, the relationships of solidarity and in in my, in my interconnectedness based on our shared mutual vulnerability. I respect the intrinsic equal dignity of every human being, regardless of the tests for who counts as inside the, the moral legal community, uh, according to tests and criteria that are established by the strong, according to serve their own interests, uh, being truthful. And ultimately, all of these goods and virtues can be understood through the lens uh, of friendship. And so we have to practice these virtues uh, with practices that take ourselves outside of ourselves, that draw our gaze up towards others and out from our own interior self. And the paradigm, and this becomes really important for public bioethics, of the network of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving par excellence is parenthood. A child doesn't have to earn the right to be cared for by her, her parents, and parents don't have to sign a contract, don't, don't, don't take care of their children just because they had some prior contractual obligation to do so or they volunteered to do so. And you see in the literature and in the, in the philosophy that undergirds a lot of these areas of public bioethics, just the, the, the naked claim that parents, in fact, don't have an obligation to take care of their children if they don't, if they don't, if they didn't choose to do so beforehand, or that the parent can design or select for a child of their choosing rather than regarding the child as a mysterious gift, a mysterious stranger to be welcomed and loved unconditionally, to paraphrase my, my colleague and mentor, Leon Cass. And of course, um, uh, it's not just parenthood, but also participation in communities of memory, thick communities uh, and relationships of, of civil society uh, that, again, take you outside of yourself. Now, um, I, uh, I'm not going to talk about assisted reproduction. I think I've talked long enough. Um, we can open the, the floor to questions, and, uh, and I will stop sharing now. And we can talk about concrete issues if you like. But I just wanted to, to lay the foundation for the principal argument about anthropology, uh, to offer a description of expressive individualism, and to uh, offer a critique of it, and then begin to sketch out what it would mean to take our embodiment seriously and to construct laws and public policies that are aimed at the the creation and sustaining of these networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving.